Good morning. Well, uh, if I were to ask you, probably not anybody in here would raise your hands if I asked you if you watch soap operas. Probably nobody in such a room as this with such distinguished and honorable people, nobody would probably raise their hand. And yet, somebody must watch them. Because they have tremendous staying power. For some reason, I haven't quite figured out, they have tremendous staying power. I researched this week. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, Spent my whole week prepping by watching Days of Our Lives. No. But I did look up this week. Did you know General Hospital has been on the air for 60 years The Young and the Restless, 50 years. The Days of Our Life, which always starts with this dramatic music and these profound words, like sands through an hourglass. So are the days of our life. It just hooks you right there, doesn't it? That's been on the air for 58 years. Like I said, they have... Tremendous staying power. They are sordid. They're tawdry. They're not all that well acted. I mean, they're really poor. They're not as bad as like Wind Calls the Heart, but they're not that much better either. Um, They're not all that much better. And yet they have tremendous staying power. And the reason they have such tremendous staying power is because they chronicle the lives of complicated and messy people. And we're fascinated by complicated and messy people because it makes us feel better about our own lives. (laughs) Does it not? You watch some of these shows and you think to yourself, hey, I ain't doing that bad. I'm doing okay. Well, they have this tremendous staying power. And in our text this morning, we're going to see a family that's way more complicated and way more messy than any soap opera. Our account this morning will make a soap opera look like a children's story because the story we're going to look at this morning, it has polygamy, it has bigamy, it has treachery, it has sibling rivalry, it has a love triangle, only it's not really a love triangle because there's four people involved, so it's a love square. (laughs) It is, I mean, the account we're going to look at this morning, it's an absolute mess. Um, And it's utterly fascinating. And it comes as a shock sometimes when it comes to a sh- as a shock to people who aren't familiar with the Bible. The Bible is a book filled with stories of unholy people. It, the Bible is a book telling the story of really jacked up, sinful, unholy people that a holy God works with, through, and in to bring about his redemptive purposes. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this account. We see, we will see a very broken and sinful family. And yet it's through this family that the faithfulness of God is so clearly seen. And the redemptive purposes of God are ultimately realized. So Genesis chapter 29 is where we're going to be this morning. Go ahead and turn there. And as you turn, let me give you a little bit of background. Jacob, um, the son of Isaac and Rebekah is on the run. He's running for his life because he has deceived his old man Isaac. As Isaac, remember we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Isaac, as he's a very old man, about 100 years of age, he wants to um, pronounce a blessing on his favorite son, his firstborn son Esau. But he's blind and his faculties aren't all that sharp. And so Rebecca comes up with a plan to send her favorite son, Jacob, in to receive the blessing. And so Jacob comes in, deceives the old man. Again, he was blind. His faculties weren't working. So Jacob comes in and deceives the old man. And he receives the firstborn blessing. And when Esau finds out about that, he loses his mind. And he vows he's going to get his revenge and he's going to kill Jacob. And Rebecca hears about this, and so she sends Jacob off hurriedly. She sends Jacob off to her brother's, uh, her brother's, um, home, Laban, which is about 550 miles away. She sends him out there to, for his protection, but also to find a wife. 
And so Jacob gets out there, and we looked at this last week. Jacob gets out there, maybe two or three days out into the wilderness, and he has this dream. And in the dream, he sees this gigantic staircase, stairway. And in the stairway, he sees all these angels ascending and descending, and then he sees the Lord comes all the way down. And the Lord reveals in this dream that the Lord isn't calling people to try to climb, for them to try to climb their way up to God. It's not, God's not calling people to be smart enough and strong enough to try to climb themselves up to, up to Him through works righteousness. Because again, humanity is not strong enough. Humanity is not smart enough. But in His grace, He comes all the way down to sinful humanity. And then through faith, He grafts them into His covenant family. And as I mentioned last week, the Lord renews the covenant with Jacob. And he promised him offspring. Within the, within this, this dream, he set, he reaffirms the covenant promises. Progeny, offspring, property, and the Lord's presence. Which means if you're, if you're Jacob and you're going to Haran and you're going to find a wife and the Lord comes and says, you're going to have offspring, you know what that means? His journey's going to be successful. It gives him a little bit of hope. It actually puts a little bit of a spring in his step. If the Lord comes to you and says, you're going to have offspring when you're a single dude, that would put a little bit of spring in your step, would it not? If you know you're going to go look for a wife, and the Lord says, no, you're going to have offspring. you got a little bit of spring in your step. In, in fact, the opening line of, of Genesis chapter 29, the Hebrew actually reads, then Jacob lifted up his feet. He's been renewed by the Lord and promised a wife. That'll put a little bit of spring in your step if you're a young single guy. Shoot, that might even put a little bit of spring in your step if you're an old single guy. So Genesis 29 is where we're going to be. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work all the way through Genesis chapter 29 through Genesis chapter 30, verse 24. So it's a big section. It's 59 verses. So go ahead and buckle in. Um, and the account, let me give it to you. It breaks down into three sections, pretty nice and tidy. Here's what it is. In case you're a note taker, you'll want to take note. In verses 1 through 14 of Genesis 29, 1 through 14, Genesis 29, what we'll see is Jacob meets Rachel, and it's love at first sight. The moment he sees her, he falls in love with her. So verses 1 through 14, Jacob meets Rachel, it's love at first sight. Verses 15 through 30, we'll see Jacob meets his match. And if you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. He meets his match, and he's trapped by his first words. He, this young guy opens his mouth, and he's immediately trapped by his own words, which is one of the typical mistakes of young guys is they open their mouth too darn quickly. And Jacob does that. He opens his mouth way too quickly. He meets his match. He's trapped by his first words. And then, lastly, in verse 31 of 29, and then all the way through 30, 24, we'll see Jacob's messy marriages. And they're wrecked by the first night. Absolutely wrecked by the first night. Not a really great honeymoon for Jacob and we'll see that here in a second. So, let's get into the account. Beginning in verse beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 29 where Jacob meets Rachel and it's love at first sight. So, here we go. Then Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. So again, he travels this 550 miles without GPS, without Siri, Without, remember the old map quest directions? He doesn't even have that. He just sets off. And he may, when he gets to here, he may not even know exactly where he's at. He just knows he's moved northeast from Pal- Palestine. So he gets up into this region, people of the east, and he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well, that, uh, for out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone, on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Um, now, you got to remember, if you've been with us in Genesis, it was at a well where Abraham's servant found Rebekah. 
Remember that way back in Genesis chapter 25? And so now here's Jacob. He's also at a well. And there's this large stone that's covering this well to keep people from falling into it or animals from falling into it to keep other debris from from getting into it. And um, he sees these shepherds with these three flocks. And so he strikes up a conversation. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? Again, he may not know exactly where he's at. He says, where do you guys come from? And they say, we are from Haran. And he goes, oh, okay. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yeah, we know him. He said, okay, well, is it well with him? They said, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she would have shepherded us. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So these guys, they can't roll the stone away, these three herdsmen, but Jacob, he sees this beautiful woman coming, and all of a sudden, this stone, no match. He just picks it up, he rolls it away. It's an amazing thing, what a beautiful woman will do for a young guy, is it not? It's an amazing thing. Young guys will do anything for a beautiful woman. Here's these shepherds that they can't roll away. They're waiting for more help to arrive. And Jacob, he sees Rachel coming and he says, oh boy. And he just rolls it right away. And then to cap his feet of strength, he engages in an act of service. And he waters um, the flock of Laban that Rachel brought down. And notice it's a reversal from when Abraham's servant found Rebekah. In the previous well scene, the servant arranges kind of a test to gauge her hospitality and her virtue, to gain, to see kind of her character. But Jacob here, he doesn't do any of that. He waters Rachel's flock and he learns nothing of her character. And then verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. He's probably just so overcome with emotion after this long journey. And he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And he meets the right woman. And so he kisses her. And this is probably not a romantic kiss, by the way. It's probably a customary greeting type of kiss. Because to kiss her romantically in, the, in that day, in that culture, um, he probably would have been killed on the spot. And so this is just a customary greeting type of a kiss. And so Jacob, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebecca's son. And she's probably never met Rebecca, but she's heard the stories about Rebecca. And this is, I'm Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father. And when she tells her father that one of Laban's children, or one of Rebecca's children's is there, he probably can't believe it. He hasn't seen Rebecca in ages. And he's probably, you know, a little bit overjoyed with the news. He's overjoyed with the news, no, no doubt. But in the back of his mind, do you remember what happened last time when somebody from Abraham's retinue came? They came on ten camels. And ten camels was the equivalent of ten large, black-tinted window SUVs in our culture. It signified great wealth. And so Laban, when he hears, oh, one from Abraham's family is here. Rebecca's son is here. He's probably in the back of his mind thinking, my ship has finally come in. Yes, finally my day has arrived. And so he gets dressed really, really quickly because he thinks money is on the line. He gets dressed, he gets dressed really quickly. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran, <laughs> he ran to meet him. Uh, and nobody ran in that culture, but uh, children would run. Girls would run. Young boys would run playing games. But a, 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 an older man, a patriarch, no, he wouldn't run. But Laban did. He thought, oh, hey, there might be money at stake here. He ran, he ran out to meet him. And he embraced him and kissed him. And he brought him to his, into his house. He takes him on kind of like a charity case. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone, 
You are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So verses 1 through 14, Jacob meets Rachel. It's, it's love at first sight. And now, verses 15 through 30, Jacob has met his match. And he's trapped by his first words. Because look at verse 15. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what, sh- what shall your wages be? He's watched Jacob for a month now. Remember, he's already worked for him for a month. He's watched him for a month. And Laban quickly realizes that Jacob's a good shepherd. He can do the job much better than the other guys that he has. He can do the job better than anybody else. And he, Jacob, can make Laban a ton of money if Laban can just get him at the right price. And so he goes to him. This is a business. He's a businessman. He goes to him. He starts negotiating a salary. He says, well, tell me what your salary should be. And so, verse 16, I'm sorry, um, yeah, tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban, verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older, it's kind of cute, while we're in church, um, little church bells ringing. <laughs> so Laban, he's negotiating a salary, right? He's saying, Tell me what your wages are going to be. And Laban, the narrator tells us, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your Younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It's better that I should give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And this is where Jacob screws up. He absolutely screws up here right here. Because when you're talking to a con artist, when you're talking to a con artist, you never, ever let them know your area of weakness. It's the absolute worst thing you could do because they will seek to exploit the area of weakness. And that's exactly what Laban does. The moment he says, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel, he absolutely knows his weakness. He realizes this guy will do anything for Rachel. And at that moment, Laban's got him. Because in Laban, Jacob has met his match. He has completely met his match. Jacob, now think about it, because Jacob's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a manipulator, he's a con artist, and so is Laban, but Laban's better at it. Why? Because he's got 25 more years of experience. And anytime you have more experience than anybody else at the game that you're playing, you're better at it. Jacob is all of these things, but so is Laban, and he's much, much better at it because he has at least 25 years more of experience. And Laban is at this moment is thinking, I've got this young kid. I've completely got him. I got him right where I want him, and I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I've got two situations that I need resolved. And Jacob, unbeknownst to him, he's going to solve both of them. The first, of course, was how to maximize his profits as a business owner. He's a business owner. How do I get the most out of Jacob without having to pay him too much? Cha-ching! Rachel. I got him. I got him to do exactly what I want him to do. So there's that situation. But the other situation is Leah. It's Leah. Right after Laban tells Jacob to state what he wants his wages to be, the narrator tells us that Laban had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah was the older and Rachel was the younger. And Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel was lovely in form and appearance. Now, when it says she has weak eyes, it's not talking about weak vision. Okay? It's not talking about weak vision. It's not talking about what they, how, how they looked with their eyes. What they, uh, it's not talking about how they looked with their eyes. It's talking about what they looked like. That's the contrast. She had weak eyes. She was beautiful in form and appearance. So Laban had two daughters. And, and Leah apparently had some sort of an eye disorder. And whatever it was, she wasn't all that attractive. But Rachel? Well, Rachel was drop-dead gorgeous. So one was an ugly duckling who was never going to become a swan. And the other? Well, she would flat take your breath away. She would take your breath away with her beauty. 
And these two girls had grown up with each other. And so Laban is thinking, how do I pawn off Leah? That's the type of guy he was. If I don't pawn her off to this guy, I'm going to be saddled taking care of her for the rest of my life. And this is where Jacob, or this is where Laban begins to deceive Jacob. Jacob says, I'll work seven years for Rachel. And look at Laban's response in verse 19. He says, it's better that I should give her to you than any other man. So stay here with me. Now look at that. It's ambiguous. He didn't exactly say yes. But he sure led Jacob to believe that that's exactly what he said. And it gives him enough room to come back later and say, Jacob, you actually didn't read the fine print. Because what I was really saying is it's better for me that she should go to you than some stranger. But he didn't say yes. He was very ambiguous. He was very manipulative. Two birds, one stone. He knows he's got him. He's going to work for Rachel. I don't have to pay him for that. And he's going to, he wants Rachel so badly, I can pawn off Leah on him beforehand. And so Jacob skillfully works for, for, uh, for Laban for seven years. And Laban becomes rich because of Jacob's industriousness. He's in, incredibly good at his job. And, the, and for Jacob, the days went quickly because of his love for Rachel. Isn't that nice? Valentine's Day is coming up, guys. Use that line. The days have been so quick working for you, honey. Um, and then at the end of the seven years, he goes to Laban. He says, hey, my seven years are up. Let me have my wife. Look at verse 21. My days are up. Let me, let me have my wife. And so, verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. And so Laban, Laban gathered together all the people of the place and he made a feast. He throws this huge party um, and a wedding feast in those days. Remember, it was a week-long celebration. It was this huge celebration. So he, Laban gathers everybody he knows and he puts on this long, week-long celebration. And the word for feast that you see there, Bruce Waldke, Waldke he brings this out in his commentary. He says it's, it's a word that implies... A drinking fest. That's what this is. It's a week-long binge is what this is. They're drinking the entire week long. So he gets all these guys. Everybody begins to feast. Everybody becomes drunk. And late in the night, when Jacob is good and drunk, and it is pitch black, and remember, there's no electricity. Um, There's no flashlights on your cell phones. In those days. So it's incredibly dark. It's pitch black. It's incredibly dark. And Jacob is incredibly drunk. He's incredibly drunk. Laban puts a veil on Leah. And he sends her in. Jacob's blind to the situation. And his faculties. Well. Let's just say they're a little bit dull. At this moment. He's blind and his faculties are a little bit dull. And he sends... He sends, Laban sends uh, Leah in. Look at verse 23. But in, uh, but in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Um, and Jacob, he couldn't see her, again, because of the darkness. So in a real sense, he's, he's blind. His faculties have been told. And yet he, he, he brings... Um, Laban pushes uh, Leah into the bedroom, and they go to bed together. And, verse, skip down to verse 25. And in the morning, behold, he wakes up. Jacob wakes up. <laughs> he looks up expecting to see Rachel, his beloved. Behold, it was Leah. Underline that phrase, by the way. Behold, it was Leah. He's been completely tricked. He's been completely deceived. He's been manipulated beyond belief. And so he goes to Jacob. Or he goes to Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. 
And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. (laughs) Thanks, father-in-law. Verse 28, Jacob did so. He did so. Hmm. Come back to why in the world would he do this? But Jacob did so, and he completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave uh, his female servant Bilhah to, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. So the deceiver has now been deceived. The manipulator has now been outmanipulated. And there is some poetic justice going on right here. And you know, the biblical principle is true. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow is what you shall reap. And Jacob, the one who took advantage of and deceived his father when he was blind and his faculties weren't sharp, is now being taken advantage of and being deceived by Laban in exactly the same way. So Jacob meets his match, and he's trapped by his first words, and now he's married. He's married now to both Leah and Rachel. And by the way, um, it shocks people. I said this in the opening. I'll say it in the closing too, but I'll say it here. It shocks people when they read in the Bible how the patriarchs, some of the, uh, the patriarchs, were engaged in polygamy. But you gotta know, that was never the Lord's intention. And in every place where polygamy and bigamy comes up, the fruit of it is dysfunction and destruction within the family. And that's actually what we see beginning right here. Um, it's the beginning, what we, we see that exact same dysfunction and destruction in the family. That begins in verse 31. And it's Je- Jacob's messy marriages. And they are completely messy. And they're wrecked from the first night. So look at verse 31. The first night he wakes up and he sees this Leah. And then, verse 31, when the Lord saw, now note this, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Hmm. But Rachel was barren. So Jacob's married to both of them, but he really loved Rachel and everybody knew it. His affections were for Rachel, which meant that Leah was kind of thrown into a a little bit of a living hell by dear old dad. And the Lord saw what was happening. He looked on the one who was unlovable, and he opened up her womb. And she gives birth, but Rachel there is barren. And Leah, verse 32, conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. Uh, Reuben means see a, a son. See, a son. See, look look here, a son. And notice the desire of Leah's heart. She says, now my husband will see, will see me. Now my husband will, will love me. She's craving security. She's craving affection. Her whole life she's been insecure. Why? Well, she's been the sister of Rachel. And she's been less attractive than Rachel. So her whole life she's been craving security. Craving a sense of security here. And she's hoping that children will will provide this. And so she, a couple of, well she conceives, she gives birth. A little bit of time goes by, verse 33. And she conceived again. And bore a son. And said, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And Simeon means heard. And uh, so the Lord has seen and the Lord has heard her plight. And a little bit of time goes by and, and again, verse 34, she conceived and bore a son. And she says, now this time my, my husband will be attached to me. She, again, she's seeking emotional security. Now my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi sounds like the word in Hebrew that means attached. And again, a little bit of time goes by. And she conceived again and bore a son. This time, she says, I will praise the Lord. Hmm. Therefore, she called his name Judah. 
And then she ceased bearing. Now notice, she uses the covenant name of the Lord here. See the Lord, all in caps, that's the covenant name of the Lord. Which means she must have heard about the covenant God. She must have heard about the covenant given to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. And she hears about this God who will love the unlovable. And she calls out to his name. And then you see where it says she ceased bearing. And that's probably um, because, because Jacob stopped going into her. Because Rachel, Rachel's anger was at a fever pitch. Look at verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Completely jealous of her sister. Tables have turned. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. (laughs) Now, by the way, though, look at the desire of Rachel's heart. If Leah's looked to marriage to provide security and affection, Rachel looked to children to provide meaning and validation. Give me children or I will die. Children will validate my life. Children will give me meaning. And if I don't have them, I have no reason for living. Now, what she's doing is she's giving voice to her worldview. Children will bring me meaning. Children will bring me validation. Those are the idols of her heart. If I don't have them, I have no reason for living. So she gives voice to her underlying worldview. And Jacob responds, verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Um, he just responds in anger. And by the way, what he says is theologically true. But notice it's lacking in biblical wisdom. Because it's lacking in compassion. It's lacking in love. It's lacking in prayer. All, it, it, it's completely lacking in relational love. And biblical wisdom, while you may be theologically true on a lot of points... If it actually doesn't produce relational love, it's not biblical wisdom, whatever it may be. It may be a lot of things. You can have be theologically true about a lot of things, but it doesn't actually promote relational love. It's lacking biblical wisdom. Jesus said, um, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how you, this, this is how you will be known as my disciples if you love one another. So you can have all the theology in the world, but if it doesn't produce relational love, it's lacking biblical wisdom. And that's Jacob. He doesn't, he gets angry at his wife and he just shoots off this theologically true statement, but it has no biblical wisdom behind it at all. And so then he said, um, then she said, I'm sorry, Rachel, after he responds in anger, she says, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so he gave, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and also heard, has, and has also heard my voice, and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, a little bit of time goes by, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. (laughs) Talk about dysfunction within a home. Sibling rivalry to the max. She says, I've won. Now that I have this child, I've won. So she called his name Nephilim. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant. Oh my goodness. One of the guys at men's breakfast said, wasn't Jacob tired? (laughs) You gotta, (laughs) I love the question. You gotta remember, this goes over a span of years. Um, so he may not have been all that tired. But, so she, she comes in. Uh, where are we at? What verse? Uh, nine. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. 
For women have called me happy. And so she called his name Asher. Verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben. Remember, Reuben is Leah's firstborn son. Reuben went out out and he found mandrakes in the field. Uh, And he brought them to his mother Leah. And then uh, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Um, so he goes out, he finds these mandrakes, and Rachel wants them. Why? What in the world? Well, here's why. Mandrakes in... <laughs> man, sometimes I, I look out and I'm just... You guys are like, what is he talking about? Here's what. Mandrakes. Wh- why does she want these mandrakes so bad? Here's the reason why. Mandrakes in the ancient world were considered to have something of a magical property to them. That were con- that they were when you pulled them up when you pulled the mandrakes mandrakes up their their roots had little prongs to them and so it looked like a human torso and so they were considered an aphrodisiac they were considered to help with fertility remember the song in the sixties love potion number nine <laughs> do you. Love potion number nine. Okay. It's that type of feeling. My wife's not here today, so I can sing. Um, (laughs) It's that type of a feeling. They looked at it and they said, because it had the shape to the forked little um, roots, it it looked like a torso. They thought they had a magical property to it that would increase uh, sexual vitality and fertility. And so when Rachel sees this, when she sees these mandrakes, she says, I gotta have them. I absolutely gotta have them. Whatever it costs, I gotta have them because I'm still seeking validation. I'm still seeking children to prove my validation. And so she goes to Leah and she says, please give me your son's mandrakes. Whatever it costs, give me your son's mandrakes. Look at verse 15. As soon as I find it. Verse 15. But she said to her, Rachel said, please give me, verse 14, Uh, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. <laughs> Look at this. Look how dysfunctional this polygamous relationship uh, gets. Because, now look, in all honesty, Jacob is not seen as a loving husband. They see him as nothing more and they treat him as nothing more than a stud service. <laughs> I have hired you. That's a stud service. I've hired you for this evening. Come into me. Wives, I, you can go ahead and say that to your husband if, if you want to. Valentine's Day is coming up. You can go ahead and tell your husband, I hired you for the night. Um, well, okay then. I mean, if you're Jacob, you're like, okay. And so the second part of verse 16. So he lay with her. He lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a, da- uh, a daughter and called her name Dinah. Um, so at this point, Jacob now has ten sons and one daughter. And finally, finally, the Lord, not the mandrakes, they cause, the Lord causes Rachel to conceive. Look at verse 21. Uh, verse 22, sorry. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me. Now note this. May the Lord add to me 
another son. So Rachel finally, she gives birth to, jo- to Joseph. He's the, he's the um, son of Jacob's favored wife. But note, note how the account ends. Even after having a child, Rachel isn't satisfied. May he give me another one. I'm not satisfied. Did you notice throughout the account that the heart longings of Jacob and Rachel were never satisfied? Jacob thought by finding Rachel, he was going to find happiness. He was going to find real life. Rachel thought that children will bring her validation. They would provide her validation. And in the end, they were severely disappointed. It's the reason I had you underline the line, Behold, in the morning, it was Leah. Because if you place your thing, if you place your hopes, if you place your validation, if you place your security, if you place your happiness in something that is fallen and finite, in the morning, it'll be Leah. You'll be completely disappointed. Derek Kidner, in his great little commentary on this, on the book of Genesis, he says this. He says, this moment is a miniature of man's disillusionment experience from Eden onwards. Now listen, the things that our heart craves, the things that our heart craves, the things that we think will really give us life if we get them, whether that's a marriage, whether that's children, whether that's a career, whether that's uh, academics, whether that's athletics, whatever it is, the things that your heart truly craves that you think if I can just get that, then I'll really be, then I'll really have life. If your heart really craves those things, it, the, the things that your heart truly craves, it won't be satisfied in this age. They simply can't be. If you're, if you're hoping those things, those things can be satisfied by fallen and finite things, fallen and finite people, your heart will continually be disappointed. And yet, we keep trying, do we not? We'll keep trying. We'll get, a, we'll get married and we'll think, well, this isn't really working. I gotta go find a different spouse. I gotta go find a younger wife. You get a good job and you think, well, this is gonna bring me happiness. This is gonna bring me security. You get into the job and you realize, no, this actually isn't. I'm, I'm actually quite disappointed in that. It doesn't live up to its promise. And you know, when that happens and you realize that in the morning it's Leah, it doesn't actually satisfy your heart longings, there's only really four ways to respond to that. There's only four possible ways you can respond to that. You can blame the things that you have, and you, and you can say, well, i got to get a better one. Whether that's a spouse, whether that's a career, whether that's a car, whatever it is, I've got to get something better. I've got to get a better husband. I've got to get a younger wife. I've got to get a better paying job. And you'll keep doing it, and you'll keep doing it, you'll keep doing it, you'll keep striving after that thing, but your heart will never be satisfied. You'll keep on being disappointed. Or secondly, you can blame yourself. And you can say, well, I made really bad choices. And this is all my fault. And in the end, you'll completely hate yourself. Third, you can blame life. You can look at, you can just say, well, this is just, life is just sucks. And so you'll harden yourself to not want anything at all. And you'll become a terrible cynic. And nobody will invite you to the Super Bowl party. You'll be a terrible cynic. The fourth thing you can do, is you can come to the conclusion that C.S. Lewis did in the in uh, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he wrote this. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable ex- explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, if you come to that conclusion, that'll make you a Christian. That'll make you a Christian. See, all the other things, you'll, you'll be completely disappointed, and you'll be constantly chasing but if you come to that conclusion, you'll actually become a Christian. You see, all of the, these longings of the human heart, they can only be met by Christ himself. You want real life? Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. You want real security? Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. You want validation? Oh, friend, the only opinion who really matters has looked upon you and says, I'll trade my life for yours. What more validation do you need? You see, the things that your heart really longs for and craves, it can only be satisfied in Christ. And what this text shows us, one of the things this text shows us, 
is the longings of the human heart. If you put them in fallen and finite people, you'll constantly be disappointed. And we see that in Rachel and Jacob. What else do we see? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to close by drawing out three pieces of good news. Because the gospel is about good news. So let me draw out three pieces of good news. Here's the first one. The Lord works with broken... Now, catch this. The Lord works with broken and flawed people. You read this account, at least if you read it seriously, you read this account and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, this is worse than a soap opera. You've got Jacob yelling at a barren wife. His wives see him and treat him as nothing more than a stud service. You've got polygamy and bigamy. You've got women being moved around and given for sex purposes. I mean, it's a horrible account. Friday morning at men's breakfast, we had a uh, retired police officer there from from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, who worked in sex, cri- sex crimes, and he came up to me afterwards, and he says, Oh, my stars, this sounds a lot like my job. <laughs> and he was not wrong. It sounds probably a lot like his job. And people will read this account, and they'll say something along the lines of, This is why I hate the Bible. This is why I can't stand the Bible. Well, let me say this. I said it earlier. Uh, The Bible doesn't condone this. It always condemns it. The Bible doesn't condone. It always condemns it. Every place where polygamy and bigamy shows up, the text points out the absolute misery and hell that comes with it when women are treated this way. It comes out in the dysfunction and the destruction of their lives and their family's life. And so it always condemns it. But the real reason people read this and they get so confused by it Now, please listen. The real reason that people read this and they get so confused by it is because they see Christianity through a paradigm of works righteousness. They see Christianity through the paradigm of works righteousness rather than the Lord's grace. Let me explain. When you read the Bible and you see all of this sinfulness, all of this stupidity, all of this backstabbing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and later David, and you you look at it and you you read it and you say, what in the world is going on here? You know why you're so upset? Here's the reason why. It's because you think the Bible should be a story or a bunch of stories of heroes to emulate. And it should give you a list of rules to follow. And when it's not that, you're utterly confused by it. And you become angry about it. And what that actually reveals is at a heart level, you don't really grasp the gospel all that well. Because the Bible is not about those things. Sally Lloyd-Jones, you guys know the name Sally Lloyd-Jones? Sally Lloyd-Jones, she wrote a, a, a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in the first pages of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is the Bible we give away, when, when parents bring their children up here to be dedicated to the Lord, in the opening line of that little Bible, which is written for four years old and up, about four to seven, um, she frames so perfectly what the Bible is and how the Bible should be read. And she puts it in kids' language. Again, it's written for four-year-olds. But listen to what she said, because it's spot on. She says this. She says, people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. There are some rules in it, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. (laughs) Now listen, she is spot on. The Bible is not about role models. The Bible is not about emulating these people. The Bible gives you again and again and again broken and flawed men and women who God continues to work with even though they resist his grace. Even though they don't deserve his grace. Even though they don't fully appreciate his grace even after they've been saved with it. And this, this goes all the way throughout the Bible. Now, why would God give us stories like that? Here's the reason why. 
to show us the contrast between every other religion in Christianity. Every other religion is a ladder system. We talked about this last week. Every other religion is a ladder system with a God at the top of the ladder and he's looking down and he's looking at you and saying, perform. Here are the list of rules. Follow. Here are the heroes of the faith. Emulate them. And if you're strong enough and smart enough, you'll climb your way up to the, up the ladder to heaven. But nobody's able to. Nobody's able to. Nobody is strong enough or smart enough to make their way up the ladder. Just think about the characters we've seen in Genesis. I mean, just in this little, in, in our study in the book of Genesis, they've had it all. They've had perfect living conditions. They've had revelation from God. They've had miracles in their life. They've had all of these amazing experiences, and yet none of them do. The reason why this story and all the other stories are not about role models to emulate, but they're about broken and flawed people like you and me, whom a perfect God has to come all the way down and be broken on their behalf, and then to die in their place in order to save. That's what the Bible is ultimately about. That's why it's about this. The reason this story and all the other stories are not about role models to emulate, but they're about broken and flawed people like you and me, whom a perfect God has to come down and be broken on their behalf. And then he has to die in their place in order to save them. That's that's why he does it. He wants you to see Christianity is completely different than every other religion. That's amazing. Here's the second reason. Here's the second thing we see. The Lord works through flawed people. The Lord works through flawed and broken people. Well, where do we see that? Laban. The Lord works through broken and flawed people. And we see that in Laban. Because the, word, the Lord works through Laban to reveal to Jacob his own sins. And to slowly transform his character. Derek Kidner, again, in his commentary, he says this. He says, in Laban, Jacob has met his match. And... He's met his means of discipline. The Lord's working through Laban as a means of discipline to Jacob. He goes on, he says, 20 years of drudgery and friction were to weather his character. And the reader can reflect that presumably Jacob is not the only person to have needed a Laban in his life. Let me ask you, do you have a Laban in your life right now? Someone who causes you great friction and frustration. Do not nudge your spouse in this moment. But do you have somebody in your life that causes you great frustration and friction? You probably do. You probably have a a Laban. That person is put into your life to rub off the rough edges. Um, Years ago, my youngest daughter, Tessa, for a Christmas gift, um, she received a rock tumbler. Thank you very much, grandparents. The worst possible gift you can ever give somebody. You could put that thing anywhere on my property and I would hear it. It's the worst. But you know what the rock tumbler does. You, you put a, a, a jagged little rock in a rock tumbler. You add a little bit of a water and a little bit of, and a little bit of grit. And over time, the friction rubs off all of the rough edges and it comes out shiny, polished, and beautiful. And that's exactly what the Lord does with Laban's in our life. The Lord has Laban's in our life to rough off all of our rough edges, to, to smooth out all of our rough edges so that we come out more attractive and we make the gospel more attractive. And the response on our part isn't simply to avoid it, but to realize that God works not just with broken and flawed people, but he works in your life through broken and flawed people to mold us into the people he wants us to be. Here's the third thing. Third thing we'll, we'll, uh, we learn and we'll close with this. The Lord works in the most broken and flawed of people. The Lord works in the most broken and flawed of all. The Lord doesn't just work with and the Lord doesn't just work through, but he works in the most broken and flawed of all. And that's what's so amazing about this count. Because he works, the Lord works in Leah. She's the most broken and flawed of all. The most broken and flawed of all. It's so obviously, it's pointed out. 
Did you notice in this, this account that after pining for Jacob's love and for security, Jacob's love and security for so long and not receiving it, that after her fourth child, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. She takes the covenant name of God upon her lips, which means, again, we talked about it, she must have heard the promises of God. The promise of a God who loves the unlovable. And she reaches out in faith. But more than that, Leah, the ugly. Leah, the rejected. Leah, the unlovable. She gives birth to Judah. What's so big about that? Well, here's what it is. It's through the tribe of Judah that the Messiah, Christ Jesus, comes. Well, why would God choose Leah to do that? I mean, she's, she's unlovable. She's the most flawed of all of them. Why would she do that? Well, we read in the account, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he came to her. What this text shows us, and what the New Testament tells us explicitly, is that the Lord loves the unlovable. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who comes seeking a bride. He came from heaven to earth. He left his throne above, his holiness, his perfection, his beauty above. He comes all the way to earth seeking a bride, and we're the bride. And when he found us, what he realized is we're a bunch of Leahs. We're the unlovables. We're a bunch of Leahs. And so he comes and he lives the life that we should have lived and he dies the death that we deserve to die. So that when you put your faith in him and you receive his grace, though in and of ourselves we're a Leah, but to Jesus Christ through faith we look like and we're loved like Rachel. That's actually the gospel. That's actually what takes place in the gospel. We're a bunch of Leahs in and of ourselves. In and of ourselves, we are a bunch of Leahs. We're unlovable, we're unlovable to God. But because Jesus comes and he bore our sin and he carried our shame, he makes us lovable. And more than that, he makes us beautiful in his sight. That's amazing. That's the gospel. He will do this for you. And that's actually what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. And so this morning, you should have came in with a little packet, a communion packet, Go ahead and take the bread out and then unseal the cup. And we'll take it together. And as we take communion, we are saying so many things all at once. We are saying... Lord, all of the idols of our heart that we've been chasing after all these years, whether it's marriage and children, whether it's careers uh, or validation in some other way, academics, athletics, some other thing, wealth, whatever it is, we know that in the end we have been, those things have left us disappointed. And yet in you, you have completely satisfied us. You have taken away our soul thirst. You have filled our soul hunger. And we come to your table rejoicing that you have done these things. We come to the table rejoicing that though in and of ourselves we are Leah's, we freely admit that we are unlovable. We have so much sin, so much baggage, so much brokenness, so many flaws. And yet because of your grace, you have made us Rachel's. You see us and you love us as a Rachel. That's an amazing thing, Lord. And we pray that we would live out of that reality, Lord. That in Christ, we are completely known and completely loved. All because of your grace. Help us to live into that reality because we know we don't do it well all the time. We, the default position of our hearts is to go back to works righteousness. And I think that we gotta work in order to, we gotta perform in order to earn your love, and that's simply not the case. You've given it freely to us in Christ. Father, as we hold these elements in our hands, a little piece of bread symbolizing the broken body of Christ, 
the cup symbolizing the shed blood of Jesus. These are symbols, but they're symbols of a reality. And the reality is that you gave your life in order to save us, in order to break the bondage, in order to give us new life in your name. And so, Lord, we come to your table humbly and yet confidently because we know you tell us that there will come a day when you will put an end to all of death and decay and we will stand upon a renewed creation in a renewed body, looking face to face in the eyes of our Creator. And we do, we long for that day, our heart longs for that day, Lord. And yet you have, until that day, you have called us to be your ambassadors in this day and in this age. And we pray that we would do it well, that we would extend the grace of the King as far and as wide as you allow us to, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.